Programming Throwdown, episode 49, Tamper Protection. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everyone. This is a double episode, a December double episode. Pretty excited about that. Um, we're going to, we have an amazing interview coming up, and we want to give a lot of time for that. So, uh, you know, we won't, uh, we'll skip a lot of, uh, we'll usually cover in the beginning of the show and, and save you know, our tool of the show, book of the show that we had lined up for, um, for next month. Um, but something I did want to talk about is what did things cost and why did things cost what they do? So someone sent me a YouTube video, a coworker sent me a YouTube video called, uh, most expensivest, uh, stuff. It's not stuff. It's actually the S word, but, but you can, you can figure it out, <laughs> but it's, it's it's a show um um where they just try like they drive the most expensive car and they try on a two million dollar pair of shoes and things like that what yeah it's crazy um it's really funny actually um and so it made me think you know i mean okay these are extreme things but but in general like why do things cost what they cost like kind of who figures that out and you know we all took economics in high school um, and you talk about, you know, the supply curve and the demand curve and all of that, but, but it didn't really, it doesn't really explain sort of like why those curves are what they are for different things. Right. So, um, I did a bunch of research on this, um, poking around on Wikipedia and reading some papers and things like that. And basically what I learned is there's a lot of different theories and they're all true you know, to different degrees for different products. So I'll just kind of go through them. <clears throat> the first one is called the labor theory of value. And it's very simple. It just says things are worth whatever it costs to produce them. So, you know, if, right, so if, if something's really hard to produce, such as, you know, way back in the day, salt was used as currency because it was so valuable. And it was valuable because it's very difficult to mine salt back then now it's very easy to mine so it wouldn't make a good currency obviously um but so that's the idea and so if but then that kind of breaks down i mean if if you you know if it's just because something is difficult to get doesn't necessarily make it useful i mean like panda bears are rare but you know they might be difficult to find, but you know, panda bear feces isn't worth a ton of money, you know. So it's so it's it can't it can't just be <laughs> that was a stretch, I know, but it, it can't just be how hard something is to get. It doesn't make that by itself doesn't work. Um and so um so then they came up with this idea called the subjective theory of value. And this handles so you know, there's um take like diamonds, for example. Diamonds are more expensive than emeralds, but they're about the same in terms of how hard it is to find them and things like that. But diamonds are more expensive just because it's part of our culture to give diamonds. So it's sort of like we've just propagated this value for diamonds for no reason. There's nothing inherently about diamonds that make them more expensive than emeralds. And so that's the subjective theory of values 
kind of weak, right? Because it's just like saying, well, things cost more because they cost more. It doesn't really help. But the reality is that there's a psychological, there's sort of a group mentality, like mob thinking part of this. And, and that just reflects that. Um, well, this is the like, uh, diamonds are supposed to be colorless, but then, so, so if your diamond has a tint of color to it, then colored diamonds, and then now they become more valuable. Exactly. Or even, even more ridiculous is you can get a synthetic diamond that chemically is exactly the same from a chemistry perspective as a diamond, but it's it's almost worthless, relatively worthless, right? Well, no, I, they're still they charge a lot, and I don't know if they need to or they just do, or if it's a conspiracy. But I think they only charge like ten percent difference or something. Oh, really? I thought it was like ten a tenth of the price. No, I mean like cubic oh. zirconia or something is like a tenth, but those aren't those are chemically different. Right, right. Okay, well, yeah, but but you're right. But the point is, there uh, a a a chemically the same diamond. But the fact that it is at different at all. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, so there's that to think about. So now you have this labor theory. You have this subjective theory. There's also one called marginalism, um, or the theory of marginal utility. And the idea there is, the value of something goes down the easier it is to add another one to the ecosystem. So in other words, if you look at, say, a loaf of bread, you know, if you compare, you, you might only have one or maybe no loaves of bread at your house. And so you have to go to the store, and for you it's very important to get some bread right now. But if you look at the whole ecosystem for, you know, Safeway or Kroger or Publix or whatever supermarket you have near you, for them to add a loaf of bread to their network is very simple. I mean, the bread manufacturers are probably stepping on bread all the time by accident because there's just so much bread um, that they're producing. And so the marginal utility of bread is tiny. The same isn't true of diamonds. I mean, you don't go to a diamond factory and just see a bunch of discarded diamonds everywhere because there's just each one is too too hard to come by. And so marginalism is is kind of connected to the labor theory, but but it's it's not entirely that way because for example <clears throat> um if you're out in the desert and you don't have access to any stores or anything uh water becomes extremely valuable and and it didn't make water more difficult to produce it's just that you're in an environment where you don't have access to a lot of water and so the marginal utility goes up so marginalism think of it as sort of replacing the labor theory of value Kind of. <laughs> so, um, so basically, there's all of these different theories. They're all true in different circumstances. And there's no way to tease apart, you know, what kind of is assigned to what. So you can't say, oh, diamond, 90% of the value is subjective, 10% is this. You know, it doesn't, it's very hard to do that. So, how do you break down something like an iPhone? An iPhone costs. What six hundred dollars? I don't know. Unlocked a uh, new iPhone. Mm -hmm. I don't. Know. So I let's like say six hundred dollars. But yeah, sure. Sure, seven hundred, six hundred, whatever. And then you always see whenever the new iPhone comes out, they say here's how much the actual components cost, and someone tries to do a really good job of estimating it, and it comes to like one hundred and twenty dollars. And so you have one hundred and twenty dollars of like materials cost. Then there's some labor to 
assemble iPhones yep. and some labor to develop iPhones and the software that goes on them. But then there's all this extra at the end, like the profit margin. And is it a theory to say predict how much Apple should make that profit margin? Yeah, I mean, it's super hard. So so I'll talk about, um, so iPhones are a restricted commodity in the sense that, you know, Apple just sets the price, right? But if you look at open commodities, like say oil, for example, so, um, so with something like oil, they can't really, it turns out they can't really do a good job of this, of teasing this apart. And there's no science to, to it. Uh, so what they do is because only Apple makes iPhones, but everyone who makes oil makes the same oil. Right. Right. And so, so nice. they can't control those dynamics because it's just too complicated. And so they, um, that's why they have features. So if you want to buy any commodities, I mean, if you buy a loaf of bread at Safeway, it's different. But if, I mean, if you're buying, you know, you know, 10,000 tons of bread or something, yeah. Or, or, you know, a ton of oil or anything like that. Anything, you know, that level. Barrel, barrels of oil. Uh, right, barrels of oil. If you do any of that, you actually, there's a commodities market. And you have to say in advance, like, you know, three months from now, I want these barrels of oil. Um, and then there's, uh, in the case of oil, there's OPEC who they handle this socially. So in other words, if something weird happens and everyone starts asking for oil, they, through, you know, phone calls and things like that, they just sort it out manually. Like they just, they decide they need to do an auction or they call people and tell them, hey, your order got canceled because crazy stuff happened in the market. And basically the, the free market isn't really that free <laughs> is what I learned. Um, well, OPEC specifically is not that like they control the market they manipulate it yeah well that's even worse right but even you know if you look at uh grain uh, uh you know almost any kind of utility it's all just very highly regulated so i'll give you ex another example so uh, uh in the bay area uh, or in all of california we have a drought right and so when there's a drought they don't just raise the price of water until the demand goes down. That's what a free market would do, right? But no, they, they impose restrictions. They say, you know, people can only water their lawns on Mondays or something like that. And basically, it's because they know that if they try to do some kind of free market economics, it's going to end badly, basically, because their models are wrong. It's hard to, 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 to decompose the price, and it's just going to end badly. So, so... uh it's kind of amazing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be uh, glib or rude to economists or anything. I think that's amazing. I wish I, if I could go back to school, I would study economics. Um, and really? I, I have a lot of, yeah, I give them a lot of credit. But the reality is, is these systems are just not modeled well. Whether they can be is debatable, but right now they're not modeled well. And so there's a lot of social, you know, a lot of elbow grease goes into making this work the thing i remember about economics is a lot of it comes down to like predicting what a rational person should do but then there are many edge cases that break down because people aren't rational often oh that's even worse yeah that's 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 a whole other thing um you're, you're right i mean it turns out even if people are rational the system is completely unstable um there's something called the bullwhip effect which you should look into. And basically it's similar to the butterfly effect. It just says that 
if you make small changes, like you just barely change the price of, say, uh, you know, an iPhone or a barrel of oil, it causes massive change. Like you change the price of a barrel of oil by a cent, and that causes an oil field to get shut down <laughs> because there's this weird chaos theory going in there. And, and these are all assuming everyone's rational. They're just using mathematical models. As soon as you get into real human beings, it's even more broken. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So anyways, that's my pseudo rant. But uh, uh, that's what I learned from, uh, from most expensivest stuff um, or from, I guess, the, the, the queries that derived from that. Um, anyways, if you wanted to check that show out, it is actually really funny. They don't obviously talk about why things cost what they do, but but they have fun, you know, putting on two million pair of shoes. Um, all right, so uh, without any further ado, um, we're going to talk to some folks uh, at Intel. Um, these guys are 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 superstars at um, you know tamper software tampering and tamper protection. Um, they've done Definitely their fair share of, I guess you'd call it gray hat, gray hat and white hat um, hacking. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to, to talk to them about this. Well, welcome. We're here with the team from Intel, the uh, tamper protection division, I guess, our team. We'll, we'll let them introduce themselves in a minute. We've got Thaddeus, Mark, Steve, and Norman. So we're just going to go around the room, the proverbial virtual room, and have everyone introduce themselves. So I guess, Thaddeus, you're up first. I'm Thaddeus. Uh, call me Thad Lutness. Uh, I work over at Intel. I've been there about 10 years. Uh, used to work in the digital home group doing things like the Google TV and stuff like that. A uh, year or two ago, I moved over to uh, Steve and Mark's team and been working on tamper protection ever since. Mark? Yeah, so I'm Mark Valley. Um, I've been at Intel for almost 17 years now. Um, I started out at the University of Florida as a mechanical engineer in my undergrad and did um, master's in computer engineering and never thought I'd come west of the Mississippi, but they decided to fly me out here on their dime and I really like what they had to offer. And, <laughs> and, you know, free flights and a you know nice warm weather just like Florida will do that for me. Go Gators. And so now I'm... Nice. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I don't know how we got the record we got so far this year, so... <laughs> That's all right. Hey, at least I think you won a game. What? Uh, I went to University of Central Florida. We went 0 and 12. University of Florida <laughs> won many games this year, I think. No, you, you I know. I'm saying. Uh, yeah, but UCF. Is, yeah, UCF went 0 and 12. UCF is up and coming. I mean, they got a lot of the Florida talent, so I think they're going to do all right in a few years. Yep. I don't <laughs> right, recover. But yeah. Hi, I'm Steve Price. Uh, I'm a product manager at Intel, and and I started. Uh, Started my career as a software developer, and if any of you have uh, some some age, uh, you'll remember WordPerfect. I was a developer of uh, WordPerfect for Windows, or one of the many developers, and and uh, then I had the opportunity about 18 years ago to work for Intel. And uh, Intel, you can do amazing things. It's not just on the commercial; it's a real real great place to to work. And so, uh, I product manage a brand new tool called uh, Intel Tamper Protection Toolkit. And we are excited to tell you a little bit more about that in this podcast. Very nice. Cool. I actually, I didn't know for the longest time what product manager was. And then I read uh, one of the books of the show. Uh, I don't remember which episode, but it was uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. And um, they actually, he explains, he, he developed this training class 
for his product managers, and he called it good product manager, bad product manager. And he used sort of that dichotomy to explain what a product manager does, and it, it totally made sense after it, that. So if you guys wanted to know uh, what product managers do, definitely check out that book. Um, it was, I th- felt like it really kind of explained it. You're, it the, the summary is your CEO of the product. That's that's that's, a that's not a bad one. I I would say my description is very close to that. It is, it's the guy that does the stuff that the coders hate doing. <laughs> that's my job. Nice. All right, Norman. Uh, oh, thanks, guys. Uh, my name's Norm Chow. Oh. Uh, I. Oh, can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. Uh, yep. Yeah, my name's Norm Chow. Um, I am the marketing person for Intel Tamper Protection. Uh, I've been with Intel for five years. Uh, I love every minute of it. Uh, before that, I was actually a pure Windows coder for five years. So I bring a lot of technical experience. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate the engineering team coming on this uh, conference call and kind of describing the product to everyone. So I think we'll have uh, Steve give us maybe a little bit of or whoever you think is best. Um, so I think give we'll us have a, uh, Steve give us a little, little bit of a review of what's going on, and, and then we'll go over to Jason in order to then... get some uh, questions going for the team. Perfect. Um, so so when you think of Intel, a lot of times you'll think of the bong tone that you hear on the commercials, and of course the chips that we make for CPUs. But Intel mm-hmm. produces a lot of software to make that hardware fly. And my team comes from the software side. Uh, and, and being a part of Intel, we're in the position to see a lot of the general needs in the software development community. And what we've come to understand is that coders, whether or not they want to or not, most of them don't want to, is they have to put secrets in their software. And, and coders will do a lot of interesting things to hide or mask those secrets. But, but at the end of the day, you'll have to put in either a account name and password or a crypto key or your secret sauce that makes your code better than anyone else's. Uh, and so while they're not comfortable in doing that, they still have to write and ship their code. Uh, another thing that we found is that developers want to do wonderful things with their code and they want to um, uh, achieve personal goals and help other people. But while doing that, they want some say in, in how their code is used. And so we at Intel, uh, understanding these needs in the marketplace with a lot of the really smart people we have, I have developed technology that helps you hide your secrets in your code and that lets you uh, be able to respond when people try to modify your code uh, without your permission. And that uh, collection of capabilities and technology we call Intel Tamper Protection Toolkit. Cool. Thank you. That was a that uh that was an awesome intro. So, so just to kind of recap. So I think, um, a lot of people you hear these terms like reverse engineering or code tampering, and and uh, especially you know you see it in the press like someone you know reverse engineered uh, uh, some some project and they were able to to get in or hackers reverse engineered some client and now they could get into Target or what have you. What does that actually mean? Like, if someone tampers with a binary, um, or if someone reverse engineers uh, some code, what are they? What are they actually doing? Um, so, reverse engineering is—it's kind of the process of pulling apart uh, 
source or binary code, machine code, usually. Although uh, in this day and age, we have all sorts of scripts and stuff as well. Um, and trying to to piece back together what the original logic was. Um, it's going to be thing, um, you know, things like disassembling the codes, going back from machine code to assembly, trying to re reconstruct the the flow, the structure of the code, uh, and understand the idioms that the compilers and stuff were putting in with the ultimate goal of being able to say, you know, here's a function that does exactly what the original programmer wrote. Uh, Tamp. Gotcha. Is that, is that the same as tampering or is tampering something tampering, different? Tampering, um, usually starts with reverse engineering. You usually have to have some idea what you want to do. Uh, but tampering then takes it another step forward and says, I'm going to go and take your DLL or your, your code loaded into RAM and make some change. Maybe, uh, tweak a variable so that it's, it's always a particular value or, change an if statement so it just unconditionally passes uh, so you can buy you know maybe to bypass a uh, um, a license check or you know I mean a great example is the old game genie right any code you put in the game genie was basically code tampering it said here's an address here's a value whenever somebody wants that address give them that value oh I actually never <laughs> knew that <laughs> so, so for people who maybe are younger in the audience, uh, Game Genie was this amazing magical thing <laughs> that you plugged into your Nintendo and it it plugged into the Nintendo, but then it offered a plug uh, uh, out so you could plug a cartridge into the Game Genie, which is plugged into the Nintendo. So think of it as sort of a connector that sat in between. Um, and then when you started the Nintendo, it just presented you with this this crazy screen like you would see uh, in some sort of cheesy CSI episode. And uh, you would punch in uh, these alphanumeric co uh, letter, the uh, alphanumeric entries that that were completely cryptic. But when you were done, you would get them from you know some kind of reference manual. But then when you were done, uh, you just had infinite lives, or or you know Mario could fly, or something like that. And so I guess that's that's uh, under the hood. That's actually uh, you know code tampering that's making that yep. happen. And in order to find cool. out exactly. You know what values to punch in and how to build that thing. They had to reverse engineer the both the Nintendo and the software first. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. So in this case, were they? Uh, do you think they were working with the software company, or were they actually reverse engineering it mm. uh, blind? Well, in the Nintendo world, I thought they had to have like permissions and stuff. But I mean, certainly you can think of other platforms where I mean, they back in the Commodore sixty four days and stuff like that. There were there were things like this as well, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. That's right. Game that Genie, probably not, because that was uh, there were licensing issues with that back in the day. So yeah, that's great. Would probably jump on you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So obviously they didn't have the source code for any of Mario or anything like that. So they had to completely figure out by sort of poking around what they could modify to get behaviors that they wanted instead of just crashing it. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. There's actually a lot of these sort of bootleg cartridges. Um, like there's this uh, Noah's Ark game. Um, it's actually a set of three. Uh, uh, it's called Bible Bible Games, I think, or Bible Study. But it's an NES cartridge that was not licensed in any way by Nintendo, but they were able to sort of handshake with the with the Nintendo and convince Nintendo they were a licensed cartridge. And and it's probably by doing exactly what what you said by reverse engineering. 
um, the input output of the Nintendo. Yeah, in fact, there was a whole. I forget where I, I read this, but there was a whole uh, series of games by one manufacturer that actually did reverse engineer the handshake chip and, and started making these third-party unlicensed games. And the big deal with that was that Nintendo's revenue model was that they got a cut from every everybody's game. So there was some incentive for these guys to you know bypass that so that they can get a cut themselves. Oh, I see. So they didn't have to pay that that share. Exactly. They could just sell Ah. to the consumer any additional money over the top they got, or they could lower the price of their cartridge. Oh, interesting. That starts to show kind of the battle between you know developers and and commercial entities. You know, you're always wanting to get paid for your products, and so you you put in code, and then somebody reverse engineers it and, and finds a way around it, and so then you you know do something more to to lock it down even more. Um, you know, and there's there's a lot of benefit sometimes. You know, the the new Nintendo stuff, the and the emulators and stuff, we're able to unlock a lot of games, having reverse engineered a lot of the the old Nintendo equipment. Now you can play games that, you know, aren't manufactured anymore. The hardware is slowly going out of date, but uh, but we can still play them thanks to people diving into the software and reverse engineering how they worked. Right. Yeah. One thing to understand about that whole ecosystem is that. You know, we can reverse engineer them now, but it took time. I mean, ultimately, given enough time and resources, you can pretty much eventually reverse engineer everything. It just may be really expensive or may take a really long time. So your goal as a developer may not be that they never can break it because that's almost impossible, but to you know, make it hard enough so that only someone who really is super motivated would do it. And hopefully there's not going to be that many motivated people. I mean, if you're storing, you know, the, the keys to Fort Knox in there, there's going to be more incentive than if you're just storing, you know, some game secrets or something. Gotcha. And I think that, you know, Moore's Law plays a huge role in this. I know um, this is this is more on the cryptography side, but um, if you had, you know, Amazon Web Services, you know, uh, S, uh, not S3, but uh, Elastic Cloud, Elastic Compute Cloud uh, of today, um, and you went back to the 1990s, you could actually break HTTPS and you could just liquidate people's bank accounts and, and you would just be a god on the Internet. <laughs> Um, and and so that just furthering your point that that you know given enough resources, um, nothing is completely completely secure. Mm. But uh, uh, but but as you said, it's this constant arms race between uh, uh, you know in this case just going back to Nintendo between you know Nintendo is trying to preserve their intellectual property and 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 various people who are trying to 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 do the reverse engineering to save to save to increase their bottom yeah. line. And that goes the other direction too. When you get to the 2030s or so, don't expect your PGP encrypted stuff to work with quantum computers around. So anything you, you know. right, exactly. Yeah, you know, and what what we found too is that, um, you know, there's tight Fort Knox security. I think Mark brought up Fort Knox, but then there's good enough security. Um, you know, you just need to be a little bit better than the other guy, so that when they come to you and they and their easy tricks don't work then, you know, they might go looking for better uh, targets of opportunity. And so you don't have to be super, super secure, but just more than you were before. And that buys you a lot of uh, value. Yeah. And that goes with understanding your threat model. In other words, what attacks are you expecting? I mean, as, a, as security engineers, that's something that we often think about when we're architecting solutions. I mean, obviously, we can't protect against, you know, the, the you know, the, the nation state attack necessarily, but you can you know, at what level of resource are you considering? 
Gotcha. It's very similar to, to, to guarding anything, guarding your home or guarding your locker uh, in school or, or any of that. Um, you know, sure, someone can come by with wire cutters and cut the lock of your locker. But, you know, that's a very high... I mean, someone's going to be seen walking around campus with lock cutters, and that, that, that's already, you know, introducing a lot of risk for them. And, and unless they just really hate you for some reason, uh, it's just not worth it. So by putting the lock, you haven't sort of eliminated, you know, completely the idea of someone breaking into your locker, but but you've, you've made it prohibitively difficult. Mm-hmm. So what are some reasons why, you know, I mean, we talked about Nintendo and, and about uh, uh, Bible games, uh, but obviously that was much, that was, uh, you know, I guess 20 years ago. Um, so, so today, what are the big reasons uh, uh, why people tamper with binaries? And, and so who are the people nowadays who are tampering with binaries? Well, there's a, there's a bunch of reasons. I mean, one of the big ones is curiosity. Uh, you know, a lot of the people who poke around in binaries are, you know, students or, you know, hackers in the good sense of hackers, people just who enjoy, you know, peeking into how stuff works. Um, people who want to fix bugs. If there's a, a driver for an old uh, printer and it doesn't work, you know, with Windows 10, uh, you know, somebody can go in and figure out how that driver works and fix it. And usually that's to everybody's benefit, including the, the printer manufacturer. Um, could be to add functionality in a similar way with printers, maybe to, to add a new uh, format for, for sending messages. Um, or new cheat mode. Yep, <laughs> or cheat mode. Um, getting into some of the, the, the more... Um, nefarious reasons um bypassing authorization checks is a big one uh this might be for things like drm or license keys for software um you know if you're if you're downloading wares you find the cracked version of the of the program right um Mm -hmm. spreading malware a lot of the way that malware spreads is by infecting other binaries and, and so there you're you're diving into the binary and finding somewhere to to stuff your your malware uh and then generally just to maliciously change behavior um you know if if you want to sneak a a man in the middle attack in to sniff somebody's financial information as they as they're doing transactions online and that sort of stuff if you can hop into the browser uh, that's a good place to do it right oh i see so you look for some code that that uh handles the you know when you type in uh your password and it turns it into little asterisks in the browser. Like you would inject something right there and and know that you're getting hopefully hopefully for the attacker you're getting passwords and things yeah. like that. Okay, that makes sense. Are there as far as the so so you mentioned hobbyists? Um, are there also? I mean, are, is this mostly individuals? Are there you know? Like, is there, like, organized crime? Like, are there, are there massive entities that are doing this? Oh, heck yes. Uh, or is it mainly people in their basement or what? I mean, if you look at, it's getting more and more organized all the time. I mean, if you look, there are, like, inter- international gangs now that it's not drugs anymore, but it's all about, you know, hacking stuff. I mean, very well organized, pretty scary groups that, you know, do all sorts of, you know, things that are very financial nature, they're very much organized as businesses and not, you know, they're not the lone hacker in the basement that you'd think of. Yeah, so I was at uh, at Black Hat uh, this last summer 
and uh, you know they were showing the nature of of what you call malware or the you know the the black market industry, and uh, you know you can go and you find the the right places and you can find a hacked uh, kiosk, let's say, for you know on the market that that whoever hacked it is selling it now for someone else to exploit or or to to get gain from it. So so there's a lot of activity, uh, a lot of it very organized with very very skilled people. Out there, just wanting to, you know, benefit from, uh, you know, from from others, and so, so it it's a, a very uh, vibrant market, if you could say. Gotcha. I uh, <clears throat> I had something. It's not totally along the line of reverse engineering, but uh, I was trying to get my Windows product key before I upgraded to Windows 10, just in case something went wrong, and I was extremely careless and. Uh, uh, ran this program that gave me my product key and also installed something terrible. And uh, before I could remove it, it had gone into my browser uh, kind of local settings and pulled out my credit card. And sure enough, the next day, someone went with my credit card to Home Depot and bought a bunch of restricted chemicals, Whoa. which is actually quite terrifying. I mean, they, they bought things that you can only buy in certain amounts, but because they were masquerading as me, they were able to to buy more than probably they would have by themselves. And I mean, yeah, that whole thing is just frightening. It's, it screams of like a huge organization, right? Cool. So uh, I think we've kind of, you know, sort of touched on this, but, but what are the consequences for not protecting against tampering? If someone just runs regular old, uh, you know, GCC produces maybe GCC with debugging symbols and no optimization and, and starts distributing the binary. Uh, you know, what's what are the consequences of that? Well, the big big one is usually the the money motive, right? Uh, lost revenue if, if people are able to install your software without a license. Uh, possibly legal liability if you're supposed to be protecting, say, somebody's financial information or uh, content that you're licensing, and you you know you, you let people bypass your DRM, you could actually be liable for that. Um, a big one that we think about is uh, reputation. Just you know, uh, somebody being able to get in and monkey with your code, and then you know, make make you look bad. Uh, bad press, yeah, yeah. Um, within Intel, you know, we we look at things like loss of intellectual property, like trade secrets, uh, stuff that that isn't actually patented, but but shows how stuff works. Usually, don't like algorithms. Yeah, uh, generally, if you've got an algorithm that is really that much better um, in your product, then you know you pr might want to protect that so that somebody else can't get at it. Um, you know, possibly um, loss of customers. If you got like mobile payment, if your mobile payments get hacked, then people are going to stop using you. Take a look at you know uh, Chipotle if you want to see how fi how fickle people are nowadays, right? Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, and, and it can even be life and death. Uh, you know, more and more we've got things like traffic lights and power controlled by computers, even airplanes and cars, right, uh, with the, with the uh, computer-controlled cars nowadays. Uh, yeah, so if, if somebody can hack in and gain control and, and get their software running where yours should be, uh, you know, somebody could lose their life over it. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. I mean, I think a lot of times hacking is the vague term that people use. And, you know, initially it's like, oh, you're going to 
talk to some web service and try to understand its behavior, and then you're going to try to send it some code, some exploit, whatever. And, and I mean, I guess... Right, some kind of like black box Yeah, that's hacking. one way of doing it. But the other way is, like you're saying, if you're running a server that's a program, and someone can get that program and look at it and figure out by looking at the source code, like, oh, hey, look, there's a, you know, not balance check string print here. Oh, well, now I know exactly what to send it mm-hmm. to hack it. Then that's much worse. Which is exactly what stuff like Heartbleed was, right? I mean, somebody sets up an overflow and all of a sudden they can start whatever code they want running on your server. There's not much we can do about that from the Tampa protection side. Uh, but if their code starts to interfere and interact with protected code, we can at least identify that and, you know, stop it at that point. Um, so, so, so does the tamper protection work at all with like the trusted security modules that are in some computers or is it that kind of unrelated? So actually, so tamper protection is a software sort of trusted execution environment. So there's no special hardware required other than IA. So in a, in a perfect world, everyone would have the very latest SGX technology that's in the latest Skylight processors. And they'd use that sort of hardware protected execution environment. The problem is that very few people have those right now. And it, let's say you're a Netflix and you want to deploy something. I mean, you love everyone to have Skylakes, but realistically, you want to sell to a lot of people, and not very many people have them yet. So until those are widely deployed everywhere, you're going to need some stopgap until you have hardware support. Right, and I think if you're in the business of tampering the binary, you could uh, you would just get some older hardware to do the tampering. I think, right? Well, I mean, presumably. If- well, if you if you waited in time, I mean, if once everyone has you know a protected hardware execution environment, then it's going to be much harder to tamper in the same ways. That actually might be a good topic. Gonna... You want to explain what uh, you know? I brought it up, but you want to go ahead and explain maybe what hardware modules, what tamper, like what a trusted execution environment, like what does that mean? So what that typically means is that general code running on the computer doesn't can't see into what's going on. And so imagine it like a sort of a little box somewhere. So a great example of, of this is um, you, you can imagine that the, 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 if you look on an older P- PC, there's this, this thing called the ME, the Manageability Engine, if you have a, like an Intel processor. And the Manageability Engine is actually a separate processor that is not a, you know, it, it's, a, it's sort of an embedded device. And the main CPU cannot access its memory, cannot talk to it in any, you know, significant way. So it can't really inspect what's going on. So you can think of the thing that that processor is running as an environment that's protected from the CPU. So the, even the OS, if you somehow compromise the OS, you can't see what's running on those things. And similarly, we, you know, with, with the Intel, latest Intel processor, the Skylake models, you in fact can do that on the main CPU in such a way that the main CPU can't actually see what's going on either in the process itself or even in memory because the memory is encrypted from, from the other parts of the CPU. So even the OS doesn't have the power to go in there and see what's going on. Oh, I see. So that protects you against um, sort of uh, you know attacking the OS or attacking other binaries, getting into you know uh, uh, I well, guess like explorer.exe and things like that. Right, but if you attack it, right. I mean, you have to have a program. So let's say you you have some hacking tool that can write to memory. Well, the problem is that the memory that you're writing to is essentially not accessible to even that tool. So there's no other program that can write into that memory other than the program that owns it. Oh, now I get it. It makes the the discovery of the hack very difficult. Well, yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's literally impossible. 
Yeah, right, and right. also, you know, let's say that uh, that you're a programmer and you're writing code, you know, either in your basement or you're part of a small company. To get a piece of software on the manageability engine is a difficult proposition, right, because it's a secure environment. And very few people write to that level of security or, or to, um, you know, that have access to get their software on the engine. And it's, a, you know, as Mark said, it's a separate computer, almost within a computer, intended to run securely. But what a lot of developers want to do is they just want to write their code. And they want to be able to write their code in such a way that people don't mess with them. And and so mm-hmm. and so what we provide is a software trusted execution environment. Uh, as we said, it's not impervious, but it's it's better than nothing. And it's a way that gives you a little bit more comfort and security to know that when you write your code and you put, you have to put your secrets in or you want to be able to detect when someone has changed something to get a different behavior, then you have some, uh, some uh, avenue and recourse as a developer uh, to, to uh, min- either minimize the impact or at least slow them down to the point to where they might, they'll think it's not worth the trouble and go on and mess with someone else's code. Gotcha. So that is a good segue to the next question, which is which is how how does this actually work? In other words, is this are we talking about something that scrambles your code before it compiles it? Is it stone compiler? Is it a a virtual machine? What is actually the tamper protection product? Well, I'll just take a I'll I'll take a, pro, a product manager's crack, and then the real answer will come from the geniuses. But uh, really, if you look at tamper protection product, it's basically two main components. One of them is a command line executable. We call it IPROT, uh, Intel Protector, uh, for long. But it's an IPROT commu- uh, uh, It's IPROT, and it's a command line. You type in some input parameters, and you include one of those parameters is the input file. And this input file is your binary. It could either be a Windows binary or an Android binary, a DLL form. And then it spits out uh, another executable that will run on any uh, Intel processor, but this one will be self-encrypting and self-modifying. And so the difference between the, the input binary you give it and the output binary it spits out is the same identical functionality, but as it runs, it will be encrypting itself, unencrypting itself, modifying the code to make it very difficult for someone to figure out what's going on. So that's one component, and that's a command line executable. Another one is a library called Code Verify, and and how that's used is is you weave the Code Verify into your code, and what it allows you to do is reach out from this trusted executable environment. So just going back to IPROT, the binary it spits out we call a, tr- a software trusted executable environment. And from within, th- within that base, then you can reach out to other unprotected pieces of code and check it. You know, are you, uh, are you still the same piece of code that I expect you to be? And if it isn't, then we can flag it. Uh, and because it's in a TEE, it becomes difficult for an attacker, let's say, to change the signal from zero to one, you know, from a yes to a no, for example. So, mm-hmm. so that's pretty much, the, the, it's very simple. Um, we have some other ancillary pieces uh, that help developers do their work, uh, that help what we call code bind, that uh, lets the verification piece uh, uh, check a predefined uh, a version of, uh, of the file so you know when it's been changed. But uh, pretty much just a, a, a security compiler, you can call it, and a library that helps you go out and check and verify the integrity of your code. 
Yeah, speak a little bit to sort of like the workflow of how you'd work. I mean, if you're using something like GCC or something like that, essentially, you know, you would take your program and separate out what you think the, the critical sensitive functionality is. I mean, you don't want to necessarily put the whole program in this because it has performance consequences. And then you, that turns to a shared library, either an SO or a DLL, depending on what, you know, platform you're going into. And then that that is your, your sort of root of trust, your thing to start with. And so you... You compile through GCC, you get an SO out for a DLL, then you run that DLL through our tool, and then you have a, a new DLL with the same entry points, same functionality, but um, it's not going to be very easy to tamper with or reverse engineer. And that, that's for IPROT. Yeah. And then for uh, for the code verify technology, um, you know, you take a binary, uh, you know, exe. I believe we can even take exes for that. I know DLLs and SOs, uh, and you generate uh, basically it's it's like a cryptographic hash signature of that file um, using a, a tool called CodeBind that I think Steve mentioned, uh, and then from that you can check all or even just parts of your execution file against that. And that, so that's kind of the lightweight, uh, relatively fast IPROT output because it's self-modifying. And it, in fact, it keeps very little of the executable code in plain text at any given time. So as you're running, it's constantly trying to pull stuff down and, and uh, transcript it to, to the next phase of execution. Uh, so it's, it's there's a lot of heavy-duty processing going on there. Um, so that's the heavyweight thing. You want to be in as little as possible only for your most secure code, and then, you know, jump out to this much faster engine, um, you know, for, for more of the general, is my code still untampered? Could, could you maybe walk us through the flow, like a function level, like what kind of function, so you said you wouldn't want it all to be there, so your, <laughs> your main is running, you're doing something, you want to log a user in or whatever, like what would be the kind of thing you'd want to do where you would jump to the environment and then come back and how does a person not just bypass the trusted environment like how do you prevent them from yeah, just not going there okay great, great question so the first way you do that is you've got to put something of important of value in the trusted environment that in other words something that if they were to just rip out and skip it then whatever functionality that your code performs would no longer work so one example we could have here is let's just say we're doing a video decoder for instance and then the video decoder is decrypting some video stream, and then it, it has a, a decrypt functionality, and then it passes that video stream on to you know some, some other buffer and decrypted it form. And let's say you, you don't really care so much, you know, once the bytes are decrypted, they're you know uncompressed, so there's lots of you know, they're hu the, the size of the video is huge, so you're not going to no one wants the raw bits, but you want to protect the, the encrypted bits from easily being transferred around. So you know one attack you know would be hey, I'm just going to call your, well, the first attack would be, I'm just going to look at the, the keys, the decryption keys in, inside your your sensitive application. So that's an example of something that you might want to protect with with iProt. So you typically put, you know, the, the actual decryption stage in there. And the issue you have, though, is so let's say anybody can call this. So I'm just going to, I'm, not, I'm going to keep your thing as is. I'm not going to modify it. I'm not going to hack it. I'm going to call your API and then, I'm just going to grab the decrypted bits and bam, I'm good. And then I can write them to disk and do whatever. So that's one place where you can use code verify from there. So what you can do is when you're ready to pass the bits off to some other module in your system that does the next thing with those bits, you can make sure that the one you're handing it off to is not some rogue 
application or rogue program or modified program that's going to write it off to disk or something to a file, but it's going to be the expected module that is the display driver or something like that. And that's where you would use code verify to, to sort of inspect it before you hand the bits off every cycle of the decrypt. So, you know, an attacker to bypass that would, you know, have to extract the key, which is more difficult, or they would have to find some way to to modify something in the chain to be able to write it to disk. So those are the things you want to avoid. Yeah, yeah. Mark, that makes sense. Oh, oh, I, I was just going to say, um, you know, Mark in the past has described that, that scenario as a decrypting fool. And so, you know, someone hands you, you know, they, they isolate the module that does the decryption, and they say, oh, okay, I just hand it some encrypted bits, and it's going to spit me out the, the good ones. And if the thing that does the decryption can't identify who's calling him and, and enforce that it's the one he expects, then that's the, uh, the, the decrypting fool scenario. And no exactly. one wants so you that. Can use, no. So you can, again, you can use code to verify, in addition to checking your downstream who you deliver to, you can check your callers to make sure that they're authorized to actually use you. So if you do something sensitive, like you say, you know, if you do something like return passwords given a username, you can make sure that only someone who's authorized to, to ask for pa for a you know a password back from a username or whatever or a, you know you're a safe and you're opening the safe you only open the safe to authorized you know components. So then people can't just pick gotcha. up your code and use it wherever they want and who cares what it's exactly. inside of it without modifying it and that's right. where the iprop comes in is that in order for them to be able to modify it in such a way to bypass these checks that's what makes it hard. So you need the iprop as sort of somewhere safe to stand before you go out and do all this checking. Because otherwise, if they just change the checks, then, you know, it's all for naught. I mean, like, if you were to write this without iprop, as a reverse engineer, what I would do is I'd find out where the if check is, you know, if this module is trusted, and I just always change it to unconditional, go ahead and assume it's trusted. So you need to make sure that that attack is hard to do so that the check isn't a waste of time. So can you kind of, can you kind of walk me through... Um... So, uh, so there's this machine code, and I have this, and there's these. Uh, I think there's like IDS is one of them, but there's a bunch of these decompilers that you can download off the internet, and you end up with, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you end up with, you know, C code with some assembly woven in where it couldn't do anything better, and 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 the C code it it tries to, uh, you end up with ifs and and a little bit of logic. Um, of course, all the variable names are, you know, A, B, C, D, because those those aren't preserved, right? Um, but, and from there, that's how you would do things is what you're saying. Like, you'd find this if, maybe you'd step through this C code that you've generated through decompiler. You would, you'd recompile it and walk through it and see, oh, this this line right here is where it's checking for the the CD key, and I'm just going to make that. I'm just going to take delete that code or make it always true or something. Exactly. So, so if you if you so if you tried to do the same thing, you get one of these decompilers off the internet and you run it on a binary and just assume that the entire binary is is under tamper protection. So, what does that look like? Is it just so I, like a complete? Yeah, I ran uh, Ida Pro for curiosity uh, earlier this week, actually. On, on one of our binaries, and, and that has a A very expensive tool. Yes, it's that is a, a very expensive tool. Uh, it, but it's more for disassembly, but it you know it takes the disassembly apart and creates a, a program flow structure like like you're talking about. And you know when I did it against the the unobfuscated code, um, it 
you know, showed me a really great flow, mapped really well to the original uh, structure. When I looked at the um, at the encrypted code, I saw a couple of assembly instructions and then a couple of blocks of stuff going off, writing to random memory, and then it just ended in a call to an undefined function, uh, which is actually, you know, knowing how it works, that, that was what I expected to see. Uh, but really, it can't go beyond that because most of the time, the functions that are being called are either ones that we write ourselves as we go or ones that we have decrypted along the way as we've been mutating the uh, the assembly code. And in fact, Oh, I see. Now I think it's kind of clicked. So, so, so what your program does is it creates something... It creates a binary that just cannot be represented as a source file because of its self-modifying nature. Yeah. Like there, there's no sort of C. It just there's no C syntax that could exist that could explain what's happening what? uh, after You would this actually have to step through every possible phase of of execution, track down every path that it traces in order to figure out what instructions would be executed because uh, at any given static point in time, most of them are going to be not just encrypted, but have been encrypted multiple times and have to be, in, be decrypted multiple times in order to be visible. Yeah, what these tools typically do, the IDA pros and things, that's what we call static analysis. In other words, they take a look at the, the binary state on disk and they try to reverse engineer it as best it can from that state. The issue is when you're having things that are constantly being encrypted and decrypted, at every stage, ideally, you would want to run it while it's running, not just simply at rest, because there's no there's nothing mm -hmm. you can tell you about you know the encrypted code until the code became unencrypted. And the way our tool works is that only a very small portion of the code at any point in time is ever in the clear. So it's much more work to be able to do that sort of analysis. And the other advantage of that is we actually use that code as part of the key to encrypt the the code at one state is part of the key to encrypt to the next state. So if you make a change, it starts to become this cascading reaction that ultimately generally re uh, results in a protection e exception of some sort that, that will th cause the, uh, the processor to throw back to the OS and kill the process. Exactly. That's the primary way we protect against tampering in this environment is that by modifying the code, you're modifying the decryption key which results in decrypting perfectly legal instructions but are, that are total garbage that are bound to lead you to a, to a crash. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that, that, thank you so much for explaining that. Really, uh, I, it took me from a complete Luddite of reverse engineering and tamper protection to now I think I could... Uh, could explain to somebody how it works. So that's that's totally awesome. So so for other people like uh, like Patrick, I don't know about Patrick, but for other people like me who know absolutely nothing about reverse engineering, tamper protection, but want to get into this line of work, um, and you know they really they think it's uh that it's very exciting and they want to learn more and they want to to be doing sort of what you're doing. Uh, what kind of you know maybe they're still in school or they're thinking about going back to school. What kind of background? Uh, is useful for this work. So, not Java. So, <laughs> All right. so, so please, you know, I mean, you know, one of the things we're actually hiring right now, we're trying to hire people, and it's very challenging to find people nowadays who understand how the machine works. I mean, not just, you know, 
what happens in the stack, what happens, you know, how stacks are laid out, you know, how things, what happens when a function call happens, you know, how pointers work, just, you know, that layer of understanding of how the machine works. So an interest in not just at the top level, like quote unquote coding an application, but understanding when you say something in C, what are you really telling the machine to do? You know, so things that you might do in school, I mean, like, you know, anything that talks with assembly or, or sort of microcontrollers, you know, back in the day, we had like the Motorola 68Ks and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. understanding what your C code does, even writing an inline assembly on your own, this is one thing you can do, is go ahead and write yourself a very small, you know, C program and then try and look at its disassembly and, and see if you can, you know, crack open the manual and sort of figure out what's going on. Yeah. So understand. Yeah, like Mark says, understanding uh, assembly languages, instruction sets. Um, you know, I I remember one of the early things I did was I, I wrote a hash function. I started out in uh, Pascal and then uh, rewrote it multiple times in assembly, just understanding how every instruction worked and how to maximize performance on that. Um, honestly, one of the things I do for fun is I read the C and C plus plus standards, uh, uh, for understanding how compilers. Uh, work and, and I mean I couldn't write a compiler honestly uh, it's something I, I would like to do at some point uh, and I've, I've written parsers for C uh, and obviously I, I know a bit about the assembly side of things but uh, it does does mean that you can write a, a compiler but understanding you know what's happening at a, a lower level in the language uh, you know what happens in memory when you have an object and it's you know inherits from another object and you know what is a virtual function table and and you know what is happening on on the stack when you call a, a virtual function that sort of stuff um, is you know kind of where we think that that's you know kind of the problems we, we look at all day in and day out yeah I'd echo what Thad said and you know even more that brings up the point one thing you can get from school that's very useful is compiler classes that is a really good place to sort of the interface for the language and the machine meet and I think People who understand how the machine works are going to be much better programmers than people who are, you know, really far away. You can still be a, you know, a, a you know, decent programmer at a high level for big picture things, but it gives you a little extra edge when you're wondering what some, what's going on with some bug or some crash if you have some inkling about how the machine actually works. And I would highly recommend that to anyone yeah, who wants to be a programmer. The, and that could be the most fun too. I mean, you might spend, you know, 90% of your time uh, integrating two systems and it's just a lot of reading documentation and 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 writing APIs that work together and things like that but then you encounter some kind of performance issue where maybe you have to rewrite something in C or you have to understand um, as Mark said uh, what's really happening under the hood why is this code so slow and that that is often the most fun uh, the most fun part of the well, job. Well, to be fair, it's somewhat of an advantage uh, because I have some of that experience to be one of the few people on a team that knows how to do that. To oh, yeah. look at the assembly, go into G GDB and say, give me the assembly instructions. What? Why is this taking too long? Um, because it's a rare skill, so people value it. And you can really, you don't need it often, I would say, if, if you're a normal software engineer not doing something specifically related to that. You may not need it that much. But when it comes time and you can pull out the big guns and do that, uh, people get really happy very fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can really, yeah. you know, that's a skill set that is shrinking more and more we see out there. And the people who, you know, know stuff like that are gold, gold to us, but they're also gold to whatever sort of software team they're on, just to echo what Patrick said. 
can. So I have a question about self-modifying cool. code. How does that not get flagged by the antivirus? <laughs> There's a couple. Great question. <laughs> or is the antivirus just that crappy? Because if I was going to write an antivirus, that'd be the first thing I would just flag as a virus. So not all uh, self-modifying code will get flagged to start with, but you do run into a lot more risk of it. Um, and, and Mark has looked into that more than I have, so I'll let him talk yeah, about it. Right, and, and so that's sort of the double-edged sword about all these trust execution environments. On one hand, you would like to have you know your code somewhere protected so that no one else knows what's going on in container with it, but that also malware authors, virus writers also would love that same thing so that, you know, essentially legitimate process on the machine can inspect and see what the code is going to do before it's executed. And, you know, that's a, a tug of war in all these sorts of TE environments. I mean, the way it's often solved is that there's some sort of signature that's done so that you at least say where we, where, you know, where this came from so that if maybe it fails, but after, or it does something malicious, but after that, you know, you can trace back to, you know, it came from Microsoft or it came from a non-trusted party. So maybe next time I won't trust him. So you can decide sort of what level of trust you give to each one. If it's one that has no trust, then you better run it, you know, on a clean machine, isolated. But if it's something that, something that came from someone who you trust, then you say, ah, okay, I'll, I'll let it run and I'll trust it. It's going to do what I expect. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I had this, when I was cleaning off this virus off my machine, I noticed that I was kind of expecting it to be more malicious than it was. Uh, I went through all my services and sure enough, there was a service that was, I don't remember the name of it, but it, it was definitely, it is a name that stood out. And, um, and it, as we said in the beginning, you don't have to be, uh, for, for, for most cases, you don't have to be Fort Knox. You, you shouldn't expect someone from CSI or, or, uh, um, Who's the guy from Mission Impossible? I'm totally drawing a blank. The Scientologist. Tom Cruise. Uh, Tom Cruise. Yeah. You don't you expect Tom Cruise to like, you know, get into your, your PC. I mean, well, most no, of the it's people, Bing Rames who does uh, that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But yeah, but but uh but you can actually stop, you know, ninety nine percent of the problems. And and for for average uh people out there who don't have uh that much uh at stake, who who aren't holding Fort Knox in their basement. Uh, they get uh, you know a phenomenal amount of protection. So very cool. Looking for Fort Knox hardware is the way to go. <laughs> I don't know. Is there even is Fort Knox still significant? Because I heard the whole gold thing. Well, obviously gold doesn't match to dollars anymore. That went away a long time ago. But I think even I wonder if I don't know if Fort Knox even holds that much. They anymore. claim they do, oh, but if you trust the conspiracy up. theories, they haven't done an audit in a while, so it may all be gone and spent. Oh yeah, it's just holding UFOs. Oh, no, right? they just spent it and didn't tell anyone. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I want the keys to that that uh, center of the the internet that they visited the Avengers. That, that's where I want. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and like was that in, somewhere in Norway or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's always in some frigid environment. Even uh, um, the Watchmen, right? The, the 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 main base that I don't want to spoil the movie, but but there's one part where they they or go the to an evil lair, and it's uh it's always in some you know glacier somewhere. So do you guys find yourself uh, so if we want to say the cat in the mouse, the good guys and the bad guys, we'll just all pretend that we trust you as we talked about and that you're the good guys. Um, so do you have to put on your bad guy hat and do stuff like to keep keep up on the latest and greatest of disassembly techniques and that kind of stuff? Um, do you find yourself like how do you, like somebody mentioned going to black hat, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, 
How much so, of, would you say is that? Yeah, go ahead. So to be a good security guy, you've got to be able to think like the bad guys. If you are, I mean, the only difference between us and the bad guys should be, you know, sort of what side we're on. I mean, if you're not thinking about the the possible attacks and the possible ways to exploit systems, then you're going to be blind to everything. So, I mean, in everything, even, you know, for most of us, it's not just in what we do now, but in, in other systems, like, you know, someone is, you know, setting up a system to, you know, lines to, to you know, for a fair or something like that, we, can, we you know, can see the potential exploits there. I mean, you've got to be able to look at everything as a potential attack. Every time I got on an airplane, that's the way I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't go well for me because I don't typically start talking about it. I'm like, nah, I shouldn't talk about this. <laughs> yeah, listening. So how much would you consider yourself? Yeah, so you guys mentioned that like a security, you think in a security mind, you even say like as security, I don't know what you said, engineer or security researchers or security, like how much of it would you say is that versus people who just say like, oh, I'm a programmer and don't assign that kind of label? Like, is there a, di a real difference between programmers who program with security minded and, and the rest? There is a, yeah. I mean, if I would say one, the big difference is, you know, there's lots of skills that you pick up over time as far as idioms and things like that, that are, you know, takes lots of training. But the, the most important skill is being able to sort of understand the threats, the potential threats, the potential attackers and the potential risks and what you're willing to, to risk. I mean, you know, you, there's a consequence to security, right? I mean, you could have max security and then your users can't do anything. And you don't want that, right? So you've got to sort of at least understand sort of what you want, what your users want, and what the right balance is. Gotcha. It'd be it'd be like having you know twelve locks on your door. I mean, it's sure, Safer, but it just makes it'll take you a long time to get in. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Right. This might get a little meta, but when you're writing the code to do the tamper protection, these these processes you said that encrypt a executable or encrypt a library and that kind of stuff. When you're writing that code. Do you guys have like a pretty set, strict set of guidelines you follow to make sure that code itself isn't filled with flaws? Or is it something that you kind of like have an intuitive sense as an individual? When you guys do code reviews, do you have extra things you check to make sure you're not introducing problems? Well, there's a couple layers of validation, right? I mean, there's there's one thing where you, you know, when you're doing the initial design for, is this thing going to work? How are you going to exploit it just from a design point of view? And then there's the actual implementation stuff where that's where the code reviews come in. Does it conform to, you know, the, the design? And what, in every design, no design is perfect. There's always, you know, what the, you know, you, you make, you make trade-offs. You make decisions on, you know, you know, what you protect more, what less, what potential threats are you willing to give up for additional benefits? And even with our tool, the toolkit that we're providing, um, we're giving the developers ability to make that trade-off. So there's a couple of like really um, simple options you can give on the command line that, that provide sort of a trade-off between the level of security and the level of performance you get. Because you can give a command line like how frequently do you mutate? How how often you know, do you go through the code and do, you, do we change stuff? If you do it very frequently, it'll be much more secure, but at the same time, it'll be a lot slower. If you do it less frequently, less secure, but it'll code run faster. And you know this is for the application level sort of stuff, and there's similar trade-offs that we make all the time. So you know we we come together in meetings and and talk about the trade-offs, talk about the threats, and then based on those, we make some our best calls based on you know what we perceive to be you know the best interest of the users, or we can provide not that the user can tune and say hey you know it'll be up to the user. We'll give them these these tools, and they can we'll warn them how to use them, and you know put it in their hands. So, but in the toolkit code that you guys write itself. Is that such that it's, oh, if the, you know, I guess kind of like public key encryption, you can know the methodology, it doesn't really help you, um, or is it, you know, that you have to take special steps 
in writing those tools so that if someone got a hold of them, they wouldn't be able to now exploit everyone who's ever used your toolkit before? I think there's a little bit of both. Um, there are definitely, there, you know, part of the way the thing works is that, you know, there, there are, you know, obviously some secrets that are stored in this thing that's encrypting and decrypting. So knowing how that behaves can give some insights to attackers. But in addition, that's not going to help them with, you know, breaking an existing thing that from, or at least tampering with something because they're still going to have to, you know, extract all the code and reverse engineer it. So there's a little bit of both. Yeah, we, we take some effort, um, like in our release process, we'll, we'll make sure we scrub out a lot of debug messages, any symbols that, that really say exactly how we're doing something uh, and, and, you know, let us trace a specific, say, in a given instruction all the way through from input until, you know, we know where it's encrypted uh, in the final output. We'll, we'll make sure we scrub that sort of stuff out. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of that defense in depth, right? How, how deep do we want to, to defend it? And, you know, we, we don't encrypt the entire program with its own methodology uh, because that would have a huge performance impact. I was going to ask, is a toolkit yeah. protected by the toolkit? <laughs> uh, the, the code verify library is, by its very nature, has to be able to be encrypted by IPROT. But um, we don't generally encrypt much else of the toolkit with itself uh, because of the nature of what it, you know, what it is, what the tool set is, the, the risk analysis just hasn't taken us there at this point. Although I'm sure, uh, I'm sure as Steve hears this, he's like, Hmm, that's something I can put on the backlog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. To do inception, <laughs> inception system. You, you just keep encrypting exactly. yourself and just watch the binary get bigger and bigger. So I'm and it does get bigger. Question, and and you, you don't have to answer, but you mentioned earlier, if you're running on an Intel processor, you get this stuff. What happens if you run the code signed by this on a non-Intel processor, like an AMD processor? Okay, or Intel, Intel instruction set. Okay, In, right. sorry. Yeah. AMD will work. Uh, we don't support ARM today. It's it's something we, we've definitely looked at. But Oh, well, how does the Android work then? Well, there's Intel Android, run. right? Yeah. Oh, oh! I didn't know that. Okay, that, that yeah, that. for everybody <laughs> listening, Intel does support Android. <laughs> In fact, Intel oh, is one of okay. the biggest contributors to the kernel. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. I mean, I I, uh, I know iPhones are all ARM, and so I just assumed that Androids were all ARM too. I, I did not know at all. So learn something. Learn a lot of things. I mean, we're, today, obviously, but, we're but, hoping but to change. We're hoping to change that. We're hoping you know we can convince you know, you know Apple we've got a good enough product that you know they can put it in their phones and stuff like that. You know that's what Intel is trying to do. But in order to do that, we've got to make sure that it runs really well. Android runs really well on IA. So that's one of the things we're doing. We're well, not for the iPhone case, but yeah, and there are actually Apple, right? Yeah, but but there are actually Intel phones actually. Of course, I think the first one just started shipping in the U.S. a short while ago. But I think most of them are like in markets like China and India and stuff like that. I actually saw. Oh, cool! I actually saw an ad for one. Where was I? I think it was in Russia when I was in when yeah you know, when I was traveling there this past summer. I saw an ad for a for a Zen phone in Russia, an Intel Zen phone. Oh, very cool. And so Zen is owned by Intel. No, no, then? no, no. A, I mean, a division. No, so Intel does not sell phones, right? We we sell processors. Oh, oh, I yeah, see. So we sell it to. Got it. Got it. Got so it. when, when okay. you when you uh, do tamper protection for an Android thing, is there different heuristics that you use? Because obviously, battery life is more of a concern, right? So not just performance, speed, but you know, speed has even more of an impact than not just time, but also battery life, that kind of stuff. Uh, running. So the is there a difference? Life, that, oh, go ahead. 
So Battery Life does have a big thing to do, but again, we put that in the developer's hands. It's the same fundamental trade-offs, even on a on an Intel device and a laptop, right? Which a lot of the form factors are. So again, if you crank it up a lot, you'll get more security, but you know, more processing means more, you know, more battery drain. So you've again, we put the, that in the developer's hands, but we don't specifically right now have like automated tuning is what we call it when we when you adjust, you know, the um, sort of security versus performance trade-offs. But that's something that we're planning to add in future versions. Cool. Very cool. And so just just to explain sort of the deployment from your side. So, so you give a, a, you sell a, a piece of software, someone buys, installs it on their machine, and then they have those um, tools that they can integrate into uh, you know, Visual Studio or, or into their make files or what have you, Gradle, what have you. Yes. Actually, you can actually get it for free right now. The beta you can download from our website, and the and you can download it with and try it out without paying for it for this version. Oh, that is awesome! Wow, yeah, I'm so glad you said. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, if you're into if you're interested in uh, in in this stuff, you should definitely do that. Everyone at home should should check yeah. that out. You should build a hello world and then run this on it. Yeah. And and see what happens. Yeah, we That's are awesome. very so, interested. So like a... we, anything users want to tell us about it, the the beta is there because we really want to know what people want to do with it. So if you yeah. try it, you know, give us feedback. We we want feedback. That we are most hungry for feedback. Yeah, I mean, if you build something that does some kind of like Monte Carlo estimation or whatever, I mean, tic tac toe or whatever, and you and you run you run binary tampering on it, and your tic tac toe game doesn't work anymore. Um, let them know. I'm sure they would love to to talk to you. Yeah. So, <laughs> so a few more things. I mean, the, the URL for that is software.intel.com/tamper-protection. And okay. Um, Norm, do we have the um, the Hello World video up there? I I recently um, just did a a quick sort of you know in Visual Studio, just a quick you know like a six minute video that basically shows you how to do a really dumb, you know. <laughs> Hello World style program and run it through iProp, and I'm not sure if it's been published yet. Norm, do you know? Or maybe it will have had been published by the time this gets published. <laughs> ah. Oh, nice use of the what is it? The past participle or something will have had been published. That's nice. <laughs> That's the I think it's the future past participle. Future anyway. past perfect, I think. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, Thad went to a good school, so. <laughs> 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 oh, I was uh, I was on a um I was I was on a vacation with my family and there was a juggler and um there weren't a lot of people in the audience and and so he said who wants to go on the stage? And my wife yelled, uh this guy oh, does. Sure. And so I ended up on the stage. And he said, "Do you know?" And he mentions I honestly don't remember the lady's name, but it's some lady who could shoot a bow and arrow over her shoulder. And I guess she's some famous Famous uh, lady of that time, a thirteen, fourteen hundred. Annie Oakley. And I don't. I don't remember the name. Oh. That's what it is. He goes. He goes. Do you do you know Annie? Who, do you know Annie Oakley? And I said, and I, I knew he was going to shoot a bow and arrow. And he hit a coke can off my head. I said, did she shoot a bow blindfolded? And he goes, you went to public school, didn't you? <laughs> and it's, it's like well, it's sad trombone played in the background. <laughs> I don't know if we got an answer about whether the video was posted. I'm I'm waiting on pins and needles. We could also go to the website and see. Yeah, you I mean, may have lost Norm. Uh, I I recommend going to the website and seeing if it's there, and if it's not, go back yeah. again. Yeah, the mar yeah, the marketing we'll video is up there. Have it up. I know that. Mm -hmm. 
we, we were actively cool. getting collateral up there um, based on, um, I think Mark was at NDevCon uh, this last week, and so he, he uh, learned some more about what we want to put up on that site. So, Actually, I just remastered it like two nights ago, so I don't know if Norm's man- they managed to get it through all the appropriate legal channels Whoa, or whatever. You're like a media mogul. <laughs> Actually, no, it was, it was my second time using Camtasia. The first time was with the first try. But I've, I've learned so much. So if you like the sound of the voice <laughs> do it much on the faster. podcast, tune into the video. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, so do you find like at an environment like Black Hat where I'm not, I typically, I know it's both researchers and people trying to explain, you know, it's kind of a mix of people, but the people, are, are they generally receptive to this kind of thing or are they kind of like, oh, uh, that's not going to be fun when that comes out? No, you know, yeah, so so there's all kinds of, of people that that go there. You know, there's a lot of um, uh, you know IT enterprise types. There's uh, coder types. There's uh, you know government types that want to protect. And so this kind of technology uh, is uh, of high interest. And it's not the same thing as like uh, you know network firewalls and things. And so you'll you'll see security defense in depth is a phrase you'll hear a lot in the security space. And so. There's a lot of people at certain layers, and and the people that are are uh, focused and interested in binary security, uh, definitely this is uh, you know right down their alley. Mm-hmm. I always thought it'd be cool to oh, go to DEF CON. Um, I'd always be terrified to bring any electronics, but I've never been able to come up with a legitimate <laughs> work reason to go. Oh, you just need don't to go connect to, to the network. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> I know. I heard what Snowden said. I think I'm not taking the phone with me. Yeah. It's yeah. I'll be I'll be that guy who goes to DefCom and and leaves with 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 no personal you information. <laughs> I know it's already happened to me once. <laughs> yeah, at DefCon there's a there's a big video of uh, flashing out uh, IP addresses and MAC addresses of of devices that have been uh, scanned at DefCon, and so it's a, it's kind of a wall of shame. So definitely keep your your devices <laughs> off. Yeah, or bring them there to test them. No, Dude. and then melt them as soon as you walk out. Yes, yeah. <laughs> sell, sell it to somebody else. Oh, somebody that's else. that's nice of you. <laughs> we can start a whole enterprise around that, a business model. I think the Russian mafia <laughs> already has speed, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All oh, right. Man. Well, did you guys have any last things you wanted to leave us with? Anything we didn't bring up? Any questions we should have asked you but didn't? Please encourage your audience to study, you know, more low-level stuff, so we have more people to hire with the right skills. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to do, and low-level is, I think, uh, going to become more and more important. I mean, we had we had, you know, basically 10, 15 years of cloud, and 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 now there's Internet of Things, there's drones, there's autonomous vehicles, there's um. There's tamper protection. There's so many different things now that are requiring, you know, low-level, you know, firmware or low-level software engineers. That uh, it definitely would be a great field if you're interested in that. Um, um, you should definitely, you know, look at the future. Don't look at right now or look at five years ago where cloud was so big. Look at sort of what you want to do, and if you're passionate about that, you should definitely go for it. There'll be tons of opportunity. Exactly. I mean, if you look at where things are going with IoT, the Internet of Things, I mean, pretty much everything is going to have a some kind of microcontroller in it, and it's both a wonderful opportunity and a very scary thing that your light bulbs could potentially be, you know, compromised by someone. Right? <laughs> 
Mm. Or worse, stoplights, your car. I mean, this is scary, scary stuff. So we need smart people to help solve these problems. Yeah, yeah. You know, in the in the security developer space, there's uh, a, a a very big demand and not a whole lot of supply. So if someone is looking to diversify, or just to create a niche for themselves, and, and they like coding, uh, security space is is really a, um, a a great place to be. It's there's so many. It's like doing puzzles. Uh, if you like to think, if you like to think through hard problems, uh, it's uh, it's very rewarding. And uh, you'll find a lot of opportunity, and so you know, get good on on tools like uh, you know Inter Intel Tamper Protection Toolkit, and get good with um, uh, disassemblers. And you'll find yourself as you spend time doing that, you're the go-to guy for anything security. And uh, you know, just by getting familiar with some of those tools and some of the the, the thinking uh, patterns that Mark mentioned. Uh, you'll you'll find your career growing in a wonderful way. Yeah, start by trying to break stuff and then worry about securing it later. That's my recommendation uh, there. <laughs> but keep your it'll keep cool. you up at night. I don't know. I read like I remember back in school I would read like Kevin Mitnick's book about social engineering or whatever and be like, oh, oh man, this is not good. Yeah, every, yeah. everything uh, in the world is just vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Or go play Eve online. Wait, what? <laughs> Go play Eve online. What is what's the connection? That'll keep you up at oh, night. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, that so, will that will you will stay up all night playing Eve well, online. Well, no, managing but, this so, security and things like and trust and things like that. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, I see the social network there. Okay, that makes sense. I've actually yeah, I've never played either. Eve online, but I've, I've heard crazy stories of you know twenty thousand hours of work getting just destroyed in some battle. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Oh, no, actually, even worse than that, 20,000 hours of work gets destroyed by someone who you trusted who ended up, you know, turning on you and stealing your stuff. And wow. that's supposed to be fun? That sounds like real life. I have well, a that, real that life. part of it, but, but, probably. But, but, <laughs> again, for people who think that way, it can be interesting. How do you protect? It sounds awesome. How do you protect, you know? How do you I know somebody them? who doesn't, I know somebody who doesn't even play that much, but through his, I guess social graces is able to just have incredible wealth on Eve Online just because he's on the top of kind of, uh, I guess I, I don't want to say a pyramid scheme, but you know, no, like is. a multi-level no, it marketing. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a great model of the real world. Right. Cool. Thank you guys so much uh, uh, for for coming on the show. Um, I'll post a link to uh, your um, email addresses if people want to reach out to you. Um, you know if they. Uh, uh, want to uh, come and work with you guys um, or if they just have questions about uh, tamper protection or if their trial expired and they want to beg you guys for another 30 days or something. So we'll have a way to contact you guys. And uh, this has been absolutely fascinating. So thanks again for, for coming on the show. It's totally Perfect. awesome. Thank you for yeah, having thanks us. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.